The CNBC app, global market news in one place. Customizable sections and personalized alerts. Stocks tracking, interactive charts and market insights all in your hands. Stay connected, stay informed. Download the CNBC app today. Uh, happy Monday, everybody. Good morning. You're watching Scorebox with Karen Cho, Jeff Cutmore, and myself, Steve Sedgwick. And these are your headlines. Presidents Joe Biden and Vladimir Putin agree to face-to-face talks brokered by France. But the White House plays down expectations, saying the meeting is dependent on Russia not breaching Ukraine's borders. The die may be cast until it actually settles, until the, the tanks are rolling and uh, the, the planes are in the air. Uh, that we're going to try everything we possibly can to uh, get President Putin to reverse the decision we believe he's made. The breakthrough comes after a flurry of weekend diplomacy in Munich. German Chancellor Olaf Scholz telling CNBC he doesn't believe the West sanctions should be revealed just yet. It makes no sense to make them public. It is good for uh, what we expect to get that uh, the Russian government is not really, cannot be really sure what exactly we will do. Credit Suisse rejects allegations about its business practices after a data leak reportedly reveals the lender held accounts for a host of criminals, human rights abusers and sanctioned dictators. And UK Prime Minister Boris Johnson will today lift all pandemic-era restrictions in England as he lays out his plan to live with COVID. This just a day after the Queen tests positive for the virus. Right, so let's get straight into our top story. Karen's joining me at the wall. There's a lot to go through. President Joe Biden has agreed to meet with Russia's Vladimir Putin, quote, in principle, to find a solution to the crisis in Ukraine. In a statement, the White House said such a meeting remains on the table, provided Russia does not launch an incursion into Ukraine. The summit was proposed by France's Emmanuel Macron, who held talks with Putin on Sunday. The two agreed to step up diplomacy efforts, but Putin reportedly remained adamant that escalating violence and shelling at the eastern border was coming from Ukrainian forces. That is a claim disputed by Kiev and the West. Speaking to NBC on Sunday, the Secretary of State in the US, Antony Blinken, said the United States and NATO were doing all they could to prevent a Russian invasion. The die may be cast until it actually settles, until the the tanks are rolling and uh, the the planes are in the air, uh, that we're going to try everything we possibly can to uh, get President Putin to reverse the decision we believe he's made and to dissuade him. We continue to try to build everything we can to deter him from the course that he's now set on. And until the last minute, there is still an option to, uh, uh, for him to pull back. That's what we're trying to do. We're trying to prevent a war. As soon as you trigger the sanctions, of course, any deterrent effect they may have is gone. They get absorbed uh, by President Putin and he, and he moves on. At this weekend's Munich Security Conference, political and defence leaders held a series of talks on the crisis in Ukraine, with NATO's Jens Stoltenberg and EU Commission President Ursula von der Leyen telling CNBC the West is ready to impose a variety of sanctions on Moscow. Reuters is reporting the first sanctions package could see US financial institutions block transactions from Russian banks. 
Meanwhile, Russia and Belarus will continue joint military drills and war games into this week. They were initially slated to end on Sunday, but will now continue indefinitely, with Minsk officials citing escalating tensions on Ukraine's eastern border. According to NATO, some 30,000 Russian troops are taking part in the military exercises in Belarus. The country shares a 665-mile border with Ukraine. Speaking to CNBC at the Munich Security Conference, NATO Secretary General Jens Stoltenberg said the build-up of troops around Ukraine means Russia could launch an incursion at any time. As what we have seen over the last uh, months uh, is uh, the biggest military build-up since the end of the Cold War uh, with the largest concentration of forces uh, and, uh, and they have all the capabilities in place, uh, Russia, to launch an attack uh, on Ukraine with hardly any warning at all. They can afford to do all of this. Yeah, they have the places there. So, so no one is actually denying that, that Russia has all these forces in place. Uh, the question is, will they launch an attack? Uh, of course, there's no certainty about that, but... Uh, the President of the United States yeah. seems certain, but you're well, not. Well, we have more... No, no, we as a NATO allies, the United States, all of the NATO allies, we have the same assessment that it's a very high risk for uh, a, a Russian attack on uh, Ukraine. Uh, and that is partly because of the uh, military uh, build-up, the presence of Russian forces, but also the very threatening rhetoric, and also that we have seen attempts by Russia to stage a pretext to create the situation in Donbass or somewhere else uh, as the excuse uh, for uh, attacking uh, uh, Ukraine. We have seen that uh, false uh, accusations about genocide, we have seen uh, a very high increase in number of violations of the ceasefire in Donbass. And all of this, of course, uh, adds to the uh, picture that uh, this is a real danger for a, a, a Russian attack. Jens yeah, Stoltenberg there. Well, the Ukrainian president, Volodymyr Zelensky, says the country is, quote, ready for everything. Speaking at the Munich Security Conference, he accused Western leaders of a policy of appeasement towards Moscow and criticised them for not imposing sanctions after claiming an attack was imminent. So you're telling me 100% the war will start in a couple of days? Then what are you waiting for? We don't need your sanctions after the bombardment will happen, after our country will be fired at, or after we have no borders. We'll have no economy, and part of the country will be occupied. Why would we need these sanctions then? Well, let's get to Hadley now, who joins us from Munich. Uh, terrific we work over the week uh, weekend, um, Hadley. Obviously, incredibly busy and a lot of commentary from Munich. I guess what we know so far is we have a meeting between Blinken and Lavrov on Thursday and then potentially this summit between uh, Biden and Putin in principle. Can we take it that post this weekend we have stepped back? at all? Has there been some element of de-escalation, given that we now seem to have a diplomatic timetable that runs through the rest of the week? <laughs> Jeff, given what I've seen on this story over the last several months and even in the last several days, I wouldn't want to speculate. I wouldn't want to go that far. And the reason I say that is because depending on which party you're talking to, there's a very different narrative that's been happening. Now, essentially what we saw over the Munich Security Conference is the Ukrainian president, Zelensky, coming out and pleading with Western allies uh, to move forward with sanctions as a deterrent. 
The West refusing to budge on that one. We heard from Antony Blinken. We heard from the Vice President of the United States, Kamala Harris. We also heard, of course, from Olaf Scholz, the Chancellor of Germany, who said to me that that makes no sense whatsoever if the West is going to have any kind of deterrent um, for the President of Russia to keep him from uh, an invasion. Listen in to what Olaf Scholz had to tell me. My view is that it makes no sense to make them public. It is good for uh, what we expect to get that uh, the Russian government is not really, cannot be really sure what exactly we will do. So we will not speak about The element it. of the surprise. Yeah, it is. I think there is enough intelligence in this world. They will know approximately what we are discussing about. Olaf Scholz there in an exclusive interview with me, essentially saying that it makes absolutely no sense to do preemptive sanctions, pushing back on Ukraine's president um, on this topic. So it's been interesting, of course, to follow that dynamic over the weekend. And then the bigger question, of course, is how does this all play out when it comes to sanctions? Ursula von der Leyen, the EU Commission president, said to me that all options are on the table. And that's in spite of the fact that Mario Draghi, as we know, has pushed back on all of this and said, you can't sanction energy because we need to get energy from Russia. She told me that there are plans in place to make up for a shortfall next winter. She said there are already agreements with the United States and other providers. And at the same point, Olaf Scholz, of course, is speaking um, not just to the international audience, to his NATO allies, but he's got to talk to his domestic audience as well. I said, hey, listen, do you honestly believe that the regular German would say that they feel safer if Ukraine becomes a part of NATO? And he said, well, it really isn't about that. And I said, well, actually, it's about gas prices, isn't it? And if this all revolves on around the conversation of Nord Stream 2, and it also revolves around um, the internal politics of Germany, of course, a country that since the Second World War um, has had a decided element of pacifism. They put much more emphasis on prosperity, peace, economic diplomacy than on military confrontation, and that's just as a direct result of the history. Listening to what I asked him um, over the weekend, I said, you're often perceived as NATO's weakest link. How do you respond to that? Listen in. Germany is the strongest continental power in Europe. We have uh, increased our military and defense spending really dramatically in the last years. It's uh, since I became the finance minister in the minister in the earlier government. Uh, it, it's an increase from from about uh, of about thirty six percent, which is quite a lot. And uh, we are still working on doing this job. On the other hand, we are the ones that are supporting. For instance, the Ukraines with all the necessary means. We are doing our job in NATO with uh, our troops in Lithuania, with uh, air policing in the Baltic states and Romania and all this. And the people know it and they can rely on us. NATO's Secretary General has said multiple times in the last several days that we're now facing a new normal in Europe, a new security dynamic. For Germany, do you believe that that new normal will decrease the pacifism? not just in government, but also in the general public? The people in Europe want peace, and this is our task as leaders to work hard to make this possible. Sometimes peace isn't an option. And on the other hand, we have to be prepared. This is why we are united as partners in the NATO. This is why we are working together in the European Union. And uh, as the as a country right in the center of the European Union with more than 80 million people with a very strong GDP and a very good defense structure, we will play our part for being prepared for 
a difficult situation, but the task of the, the aim of all what we do is peace, making this feasible. And this is why we are not just discussing about what might happen if there is a military threat to Ukraine, but also on the same time working on how we can find an arrangement between NATO and Russia, between the United States and Russia. And uh, this would keep peace in Europe much better. Olaf Schultz there, the chairman. Chancellor telling me the aim of everything that we do is peace. Now, I asked him directly, do you believe that you can trust Vladimir Putin? You know, you've just been in Moscow. Do you think you can trust the Russian president? And he said, well, he can trust us. Guys. Hadley, let me pick up here. Um, there are a couple of points to be made, I guess. One is, um, given that the... Uh, uh, the moniker of Munich when it comes to any negotiations over potential warfare, warfare is, is never a particularly positive one hanging over your head, given its history. Uh, and the fact that um, Olaf Scholz talks about unity, but then says things like, well, we're not so sure about sanctions over energy and so forth. Is there agreement, do you think, on the level of sanctions, even if Olaf Scholz is not willing to be transparent about what's being planned. I think that there is an understanding, Jeff, amongst NATO allies and European allies that the Germans are going to have to get on board if it becomes necessary for them to do so. And that would necessarily mean the suspension of Nord Stream 2 and some kind of a pushback on energy. Um, and I think that that's an understanding that the Italians have, 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 are going to have to come to grips with as well, because I couldn't be more clear uh, the message from Ursula von der Leyen that all options are, in fact, on the table. And no one is better placed as she is, frankly, the former defense minister of this country, of Germany, to understand all of the different dynamics at play. Because obviously, Olaf Scholz has got to think about his domestic audience as well. And folks that I was speaking to here on the sidelines of this conference, we're talking 30 heads of state, over 100 members of the sort of diplomatic and military industrial complex, if, if you will, essentially saying to me on multiple occasions, you know, there is pushback within Germany. What are we doing allowing, you know, the broader NATO and Western Europe and the United States uh, tell us what to do? This is an $11 billion investment in Nord Stream 2 when we talk about what happens next with our energy dynamic. So he does have pushback, I think, within this country as to the potential fallout from all of this. But at the same point, as I say, it's been made very clear what's going to happen um, if there is an invasion of Ukraine. At that same point, though, I want to point out, and we've heard President Zelensky say this, the foreign minister has said it to me as well on multiple occasions, Ukrainians are under no illusions here. They understand that if something happens, nobody's going to fight for them. So you're going to continue to see them on the sidelines of any of these conversations between uh, potentially Biden and Putin and the inclusion of Zelensky. They're going to be pushing in Washington. They're going to be pushing at the United Nations. They're going to be in Brussels this week. The foreign minister is there already uh, pushing allies to do as much as possible to keep anything from happening on the ground. Guys. Can I just probe a little bit further on the energy story? Because I know that you've spoken to Putin about this in, in recent months. Uh, just this a situation that was unfolding in Europe. And we know that stockpiles have dwindled further. Christian Lindner, the finance minister of the weekend in Germany, was talking about the prospect of gas supplies being cut off. Just what is the situation looking like, given that this is meant to be your bounce back for a lot of European economies, particularly Germany, which won't happen if you see any energy shortfall? It's an excellent question, Karen, and I think what's really, really going to be um, fascinating to watch all of this play out, I mean, it's going to hurt the pocketbooks, potentially, of many people, but it's also going to be really interesting in the historical narrative, if you will, um, not just 
whether or not there will be problems getting gas to Europe as a result of all of this, but whether or not um, President Putin's relationship with uh, Xi Jinping will evolve in a way that quickly makes up for any of that kind of shortfall in terms of revenues um, to gas that he sells to Europe. And also, we were talking about this earlier in Capital Connection, the potential for cyber attacks the minute anything actually occurs. Because one of the questions that's been raised multiple times at the conference over the weekend was how prepared financial institutions are, how prepared um, or are oil installations in other countries, our gas installations in other countries, um, for the potential fallout here. Because you've got to know that if President Putin is thinking about the potential for an invasion, if those troops on the border are actually there for a reason, and he understands that the West is going to slap him with sanctions, you've got to know that this is a man who's going to be prepared to slap them back. So there were a lot of questions over the weekend about whether or not financial institutions as well as producers of energy are prepared for anything like that. Excellent points, Hadley, and great work over the weekend. Thank you very much indeed for all your coverage. Uh, Great, out of Munich. Right, okay, uh, coming up on the show, Credit Suisse faces another slew of allegations after leaked client data suggests it was reportedly doing business with criminals since at least the 1940s. Now, we'll have the latest on this and we'll do a bit of analysis after the break. Listen to CNBC's Beyond the Valley, the podcast that explores the biggest tech news from across the globe. Join me, Arjun Karpal. And me, Tom Chitty, every week as we bring you insights into the top stories, unpack the latest trends, and find out where the industry is headed. Now available on Spotify, Apple Music, and Google Podcasts. Right, don't forget it's President's Day, everybody, um, if you're interested in that kind of thing, which means uh, no follow-through on the US markets later, but I think Karen's talking about that in a moment. Right, uh, two more Fed officials, though, have thrown their weight behind a rate hike, rate hike liftoff in March. Uh, the Fed Governor, Leo Brainard, says strong data and a recovering economy mean the time is right and that financial markets are aligned with the move. Uh, The New York Fed President John Williams says a rate hike is in order, but that he does not see a need for a big step at the beginning of the cycle. That's, of course, uh, an allusion to the uh, 50 basis points hike that many are calling for. Now, speaking at the Munich Security Conference, Bill Gates warned that a preoccupation with inflation in developed countries could harm equitable solutions. Now, what does he mean by that? I want to listen in. African countries have... (laughs) have inflation at all times. In the West, yes, we forgot about inflation. We don't have much of it, but it, you know, it's fairly extreme. Uh, you know, we have commodity markets, particularly uh, you know, maize and wheat with um, spiking prices. And so, yes, you know, I was in Pakistan yesterday and the biggest concern there is actually uh, the inflation because in that food basket, it affects the poor and, in a pretty dramatic way. There's different factors for different why different products are having inflation. Um, but you know, whenever the rich world gets preoccupied with its own problems, there's a temptation to sort of forget about the suffering and the need to be generous uh, to these other countries. And you know, will that happen this time uh, or not? You know, partly it's making sure that we you know bear witness to the the difficulties that these countries have and, you know, make sure that, you know, we do a a better job than we did uh, in the early stage of the epidemic. 
A U.S. markets Friday session caught up in the geopolitics and uh, selling pressure Friday contributing to the pressure we saw over the course of the week. So for the Dow, the S&P and the Nasdaq all flipping out weaker still. Third negative session in a row for the Dow and also for the Nasdaq. Weaker stocks across the board, the likes of Boeing, Apple, NVIDIA. These undermining the major markets. But uh, clearly a wall of warrior investors were climbing over the course of the week around Ukraine and what the ramifications could be for global markets. You could see uh, that reversal taking place. But if you just take a look at the dollar and how it is trading in reaction to what we've had, uh, tech, of course, has been one of the, the weak areas of the market yet again. A dollar is perched uh, a little bit weaker on the majors. You can see sterling and euro both trading firmer versus the greenback. Dollar also losing ground versus the safe haven Japanese yen. But the catalyst here, this in principle agreement that Putin and Biden will meet at some stage. And this has been brokered by the Elysee Palace by President Macron. That's been a substantial catalyst for risk on assets this morning, changing the direction of futures, also having a bearing on the dollar trade. And uh, you can see that right across the board, uh, Australian dollar also seen as a risk currency cl- climbing versus the US dollar. Let me take you to Asia. Very tricky with the US market shut as to uh, how far to push these markets. As you can see, it's still a cautious old day of trade taking place across in uh, the Asian markets. Japan trades down by eight-tenths of a percent. Hong Kong, China also a little bit weaker. Australia popping positive. But again, it's a long way out before we get a US trade with the market shut today. And a little bit of good news around this in principle meeting. But uh, of course, a lot of negatives around the troop buildup and uh, constant conversations about whether we will see some an incursion or invasion of Ukraine. Let me take you to the opening calls. The same story expected to play out here. We are pushing a little bit higher, as you can see, on the opening calls. But again, let's just see how far the market is willing to extend some of these gains. It's a positive of all trade we're looking at on the back of what was a weak trading session for European markets last week. Those U.S. futures early calls are suggesting a little bit of a bounce, as you can see. Now, we certainly improved uh, given the, the Sunday news flow. And you can see uh, we've got green for the S&P, the Dow, the Nasdaq. But, of course, the other big factor is still what we've got playing out when it comes to uh, the, the Fed and whether we get any, any moves there. Jeff. Yeah, absolutely, Karen. Thank you. So more embarrassing news for Credit Suisse, it would seem. The bank has strongly rejected allegations of wrongdoing after client data was leaked. The information reportedly suggests the bank was doing business with human rights abusers, corrupt politicians and businessmen under sanctions since at least the 1940s. The information was first leaked to a German newspaper before being picked up around the world. Uh, In a statement, the Swiss lender said the data was predominantly historical and based on partial and inaccurate information taken out of context. The bank also said most of the reviewed accounts were now closed and it remained confident that additional steps to protect its security had been taken. Look, uh, we know this comes on the back of, what, just a a week or so ago, a very uh, embarrassing increase in litigation provisions um, given the ongoing uh, lawsuits that the bank is currently involved in. Uh, And this latest news obviously won't help. Interesting that they've decided to come out Uh, all arms swinging. Um, I guess the fact that the information uh, refers to a period between, what, 1940 to 2010 makes the bank believe that this is history and there is nothing in here that they need to be too concerned about. But I, I think it does still continue to raise some issues about culture 
within uh, the bank. And of course, it raises some broader issues about whether Switzerland's adjustment of its own banking secrecy laws are still up to the muster uh, when it comes to where we are currently. Because uh, I think everybody's aware that there is still an ongoing money laundering case involving Petrobras and at least 40 Swiss banks that is still working its way through the courts in Switzerland here. So I know that there are many who still believe that uh, Switzerland is still vulnerable to money laundering activities and bad actors. But um, on this Monday morning, this is clearly not a good look again for the new chairman, Axel Lehman, or the CEO, Thomas Gottstein. Steve, Karen. Yeah, you, you've laid it out beautifully, Jeff, so I didn't need to add too much. But look, first thing is clear. Is it accurate? That's the only thing that really matters for a start. And it appears that Credit Suisse isn't denying that, even though they say it's very selective, that this is accurate information. So first of all, to the Süddeutsche Zeitung and the Guardian and the others who got this, great. If you've reported it accurately, that's great. And I believe it should be in the public domain because what it sounds like is a lot of uh, unsavoury players and a lot of illegal uh, players have had accounts historically at Credit Suisse. But really what matters now to that management team you mentioned, I would say, are three things. One are these accounts with these uh, individuals who, quite frankly, have had some awful activities globally. Are those accounts still open? And it appears, from what Credit Suisse is saying, that most, if not all, are still not there. Two, are the employees that got these accounts open, i.e. the the managers of those accounts, are they still there and are they operating under those rules and have they been fined or punished for actually bringing in these kind of clients? And three, what about that risk management? Because if the risk management process was so weak originally that it had a whole multitude of sins, and we've talked a lot about those over the last couple of years, have they improved them to the right degree now? So I think, first of all, is it accurate? Two, are the accounts still open? Three, are the individuals that open these accounts within Credit Suisse still there and acting under the same uh, rules? And four, uh, let's be honest about it, if the, if the Credit Suisse risk management hasn't improved by now, then you wonder if it ever will be, because quite frankly, this just adds to the long litany uh, of issues that this bank has had to confront. Karen? I want to pick up on that point around culture and risk, because uh, some of the allegations are actually recent history it's in the past 10 years or so. Yeah. When you think how quickly you can change a culture of a bank, I mean, some of the allegations were that there were red flags about who the bank was doing business with, but it was just simply ignored. And if that is the case, if red flags can be ignored, how much has changed in the bank? And we've seen a series of issues where red flags have been ignored in other circumstances. So I think that's the issue. Investors have had a, a real issue trusting the bank again. They wonder whether there's more skeletons in the closet, whether there are other issues because the culture is not correct at this point. They haven't fixed the culture, yeah. whether that's still going to be an issue. And I think, of course, as we talk about recent history, are there still cases that that uh, various jurisdictions could go after. I mean, there's a 2014, uh, the bank pleaded guilty to uh, conspiring to help Americans file false tax claims. That's not that far back. And no, if there are not. more allegations here, is there something else that shareholders will have to contend with? I think it describes the year-to-date move in the stock price. It's still been falling this And I just thought of another point, but brief, very briefly, that we, we've talked about before. If these kind of accounts have to be more open now about what the Swiss banking sector looks like more generally, not just about Credit Suisse as well, what is the USP of Swiss financials and Swiss banking if it's not about secrecy because it historically in our lifetimes and way before our lifetimes that's what it's all been about you can open a secret Swiss bank account well if you haven't got that option now for secrecy what does Switzerland have that other jurisdictions don't have? Or do you just see the money go into cryptocurrencies, for instance, uh, areas where there's less transparency? Well, an area where money laundering is rife and illegal activity is rife as well, as we all know that as well, no matter what we're being told about crypto coins.
Thank you for listening to Squawk Box Europe Express. For more market-moving news, you can head to cnbc.com. Or join us again on the show with Jeff Cutmore, Steve Sedgwick and Karen Show Weekdays on CNBC.